Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Oristano. I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I played Billy Riggins. The assumption is, as always, that you, our listeners, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers in our podcast. And please check out our merch. That's right. Go check out our brand new website designed by Eleanor Carez, who is at Eleanor Carez on Instagram. Our website is www.cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Once again, that's cleareyesfullheartspod.com. We still want to answer your fan questions. Email us anything you want to know at cleareyesfullheartspod at gmail.com. Today, season two, episode four, Backfire, written by David Hudgens, directed by Jonas Pate. Here's our NBC synopsis. Tim and Jason head to Mexico, where Jason hopes to explore experimental surgery, and Coach Taylor makes a huge career move. This is an exciting episode. There's a lot of moving parts. There's shark blood, all kinds of stuff. So we're going to get the highlights here in a second. But first, we're going to answer a few fan questions. Our first question comes from Evan Bishop, and it's a tough one. Evan is a young theater student, and he asks, what is personally the best example of acting from the show, whether from your character or someone else's? Oh, God. That's a tough one, Evan. Stacy, do you want to take it? I'm happy to field this question. One of my faves, the first thing I think about is Zach Guilford doing the episode The Sun where his father dies and we're at his memorial. That one sticks out to me. It's definitely a top of like all of the tops. There's so many. That's one that definitely sticks out to me. There's that scene that he has in the shower. He's in the bathtub, literally broken down, and he's got water running on him or something like that. And he says, why doesn't anybody love me or something like that? And it's this just heartbreaking moment. But there's so many. I mean, there's so many great moments with Jesse Plemons and Adrian Palicki in this season. There's a great one in season three where Annie is basically reading her essay to get into college. (gasps) Yes. In a hotel room. And I believe it's her and Jesse Plemons reading this thing. And it just is a beautifully written scene and beautifully acted scene. It's hard for me. I'm going to be honest with you guys. It's hard for me to pick out moments on this show where I go, oh, that moment of acting or this moment of acting, because there are so many. I know that sounds kind of cliche, but I remember as an actor getting scripts on this show and being like, dude, I've got this amazing moment in this episode. I can't wait to sink my teeth into it. It's going to knock everybody's socks off. And then the whole entire episode would air and you'd realize, oh, it was just one of like seven really great moments in an episode, which could be a little disheartening sometimes as an actor because you think this is going to be my moment to shine or to really stand out. And the reality is there were just so many great moments like that. An actor is dead in the water without a script. Marlon Brando used to say that the best actor in the world can't make a bad script good. It's the truth. I mean, whatever we're doing as actors, it's because we've got great material to work with. I think my favorite scene was after Tim comes back from jail and he's leaving the house and it's just me and him in the house. And I look at him and I say, you've changed. And he's like, I know. And just having a standalone scene with me and Taylor Kitchen, it was rooted in like, it was really serious. We weren't being our goofy selves. It was just one of those yummy ones that you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had some of those. I remember there was a scene with you where I lose my temper with you guys in the fifth season because everyone's asking me questions. Mm -hmm. And I say something like, is that what you're going to wear? I remember that. And I remember that scene. I remember shooting that with you and with Madison Burge and, Mm -hmm. and just really 
liking the way that scene played out. But there's so many moments on this show. There's that moment with Tim when he goes off to prison in season five. There's the grilled cheese sandwich in season one. And then there's great scenes that I got to have that are more comedic and lighthearted with Matt Loria in season five, where I'm training him as a football player. Oh gosh, we didn't even get into like Angela, who played Michael B. Jordan's mom and all her yeah. stuff. Like they come, we could talk, this could be the entire podcast. We talk about this for an hour. And yeah, Cress. the scenes with Cress Williams in season five with, with Michael B. So yummy. There's a great one with Matt Loria and Connie Britton in the first episode of season four, I guess, whenever they come in. And he breaks down crying because he doesn't want to be kicked off the Dillon Panthers and have to go to East Dillon. I don't know that scene. I'm yeah, it's a great it. scene. And Matt Loria just crushes it. But there's so many great moments on this show. Just watching Taylor Kitsch do all the comedic stuff that he does on the show. And just, I mean, you guys have heard me sing Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton's praises since day one on this show, just because of the level of naturalism. There's also a humor that's underneath a lot of these scenes with Connie and Kyle. It's never like a knockdown, drag out fight. And it's just such a wonderful choice by the actors to not make it the end of the world. It's two people who love each other having an argument. And it's, you know, I love you. I want to kill you, but I love you. You know, and there's a lot of that going on. That's a great question, Evan. Oof, it's a toughie. When I watch the show, it's not so much about finding like the best moment as an actor, because acting is a subjective thing and it is an art form. But I think what the thing is to try to find those moments where you're finding naturalism and realism. And I think that that's the objective as an actor is to hold a mirror up to nature. So look for those moments that are real. Look for those moments that that strike a chord with you as being realistic. And I think that should be the thing that we're striving towards as actors. So good luck in your pursuits, buddy. I love that already so far you've quoted Marlon Brando and Shakespeare. We're on a roll today. Second question is coming from Joseph in Spring, Texas, who says, Derek, you mentioned playing a person charged of child abuse. And Stacy, you mentioned playing an exotic dancer on multiple occasions. It's true. I've played one more than once. Have either of you ever had to make that decision in your careers to pass on a role because you feared it would typecast you or make you remembered in a negative light? Look, if the script is good and I think that the material is good, then I'm all for it. I would never pass up a role just because the character is unlikable or or whatever. Now there's stuff that I've passed up on because I think morally it doesn't fall in line with what I believe or what I feel or there's stuff that I pass up on all the time because I just don't like the material. There's stuff that I pass up on commercials and stuff like that, even on this podcast that kind Mm -hmm. of go against my views politically and morally. And Stacey and I both have things like that because we have a right to turn down those things. Then there's stupid stuff like I got offered a part in a movie one time and my character's supposed to be crapped out the back end of a spider. <gasps> I was like, this is just stupid and I, I'm not doing it. I mean, it was a lot of money and I was like, yeah, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, it was stupid. I would have said yes to that. <laughs> I know you would have loved to have seen that. But yeah, I mean, there's stuff that we pass up on all the time. If it doesn't speak to me, I don't want to sit in a place of being unhappy in that place for six months. Listen, if this was 15 years ago and I was starting out, I said yes to everything. And I made mistakes in saying yes to stuff. Stuff that looking back and I'm like, nope, I shouldn't have done that. But I wanted to work and I was really hungry. And now I'm in a bit of a place where I'm going to do work I want to do with people I want to work with. It's like a little more discerning, but never because of what a person does. Or I'm not afraid to be typecast anymore because no. like you said before, if I'm getting typecast, I'm getting cast. And I mean, I think that that's our jobs as actors is to play all these different types of characters. You know, but I, I don't want to do stuff that's exploitative or stuff that, as I said, doesn't align with who I am as a person morally. I've played plenty of characters that are morally objectionable. I don't have a problem with that. But if I'm playing someone that's morally objectionable and we're celebrating that, that would be something that I would have a problem with. You guys, I'm sorry. I cannot get the picture of Derek Phillips 
being pooped out the back of a spider and it's in my head. I know you would have loved that. But it won't go away now. <laughs> the funny thing about that is Taylor Kitsch was in town. He was going to do Jimmy Kimmel that day. And I went with him. We were in his hotel room waiting to go do the Jimmy Kimmel show. That's when that offer came in. And he goes, what is this? And I'm not going to say what it is because <laughs> the production actually went forward. But I was like, they're offering me $30,000 to do this thing. And he goes, you're not doing that, are you? And I'm like, <laughs> no, dude. But I just remember thinking like the contrast in careers at that point in time. Like Kitch is going to do Jimmy Kimmel and I'm debating whether or not to be crapped out the ass end of a spider. Oh, <laughs> Sometimes life is perfect like that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Okay, next. Here's our third question. This is a long one, which comes from Erin D. And she says, one thing I have always wondered is if Tim, Lila, Landry, and Julie were initially supposed to be older in the first season. Based on the seasons, they ended up graduating from high school. Tim and Lila were actually sophomores, and Landry and Julie were freshmen in season one. It seems weird that Jason, who is definitely a senior in season one, would be best friends with a sophomore, or that as a sophomore, Lila would be captain of the cheerleading squad. It also makes the storylines of Street slash Lila getting engaged and Tim's relationship with the mother of a seven-year-old in season one feel totally crazy. Landry is driving in episode one of season one. <laughs> which a freshman would not be old enough to do. And I think there's even a season one episode where Tammy says our daughter is a sophomore. And she goes on to say, my guess is that as the show kept getting renewed, these characters were changed to be younger so they could stay on the show longer. Wanted to check if you had any insight on this or if this was something they ever talked about. This is something that they actually did talk about. I know from the beginning of this show, Peter Berg was very adamant about the fact that this was not going to be saved by the bell the college years. Mm -hmm. There was going to come a point where these characters were going to graduate from high school. They were going to go move on with their lives. They weren't going to be stuck in Dillon, Texas forever. But with that, there is also some artistic leeway that is taken here, some suspension of disbelief. I said this to Stacy because this is Stacy's first run-through on the show of, of watching it from beginning to end. You kind of have to suspend and some disbelief. Because all those things that you brought up are 100% true. There's even a moment in this episode where Julie's driving a car and she's learning how to drive, but we've already established that Julie can drive in the first yeah, season. Yeah, she drove to the store for the barbecue. So there's a lot of moments like that in this show. As a fan of this show and also as a cast member of this show, there's a part of me that goes, you know, you just kind of got to let some of that stuff slide out the window. I mean, there's a moment in this episode where Lila is driving the car and she's leaving the correctional facility. And if you look in the background, you can see police squad cars stopping traffic. I mean, when you're shooting on a TV show or a movie set and you're shooting on real roads, you have to have police stop traffic. And in this episode, you can see that there's a police car in the background stopping traffic while there's traffic behind it so that Lila can pull out onto a closed street. I did not notice that. There's going to be a lot of moments like that in this show. There's going to be times in this show where you'll see lighting equipment, where you'll actually see camera operators. Sometimes we'll point that stuff out for you guys. I think in a perfect world, if the writers had an opportunity to go back and know exactly where they were going with some of these storylines, yeah. they probably would have changed some of that stuff. Because, yeah, I mean, I would say that Tim is probably a junior or a yeah. senior at, at minimum at the start of the show. But meanwhile, he sticks around for another three years. He doesn't graduate until season three. Well, that one, if we're thinking about it, makes a little bit of sense. Maybe yeah. he just got held back. <laughs> that boy just doesn't go to school. It's definitely possible that he and Street started school at the same time and Absolutely. didn't finish at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, I get where you're coming from. I think that's a good question, Aaron. And I think if you're sticking hard and fast to the rules of logic, it would drive you nuts watching this show because the characters do kind of bounce back age-wise. But one thing that is kind of crazy when you think about it is that this is one of the first shows that deals with high school kids where there is a point where they graduate, where they leave, where there are new characters brought in. As I said, this isn't 90210 Peach Pit After Dark. This isn't 
Saved by the Bell of the college years, they do graduate and they do move on with their lives. I hope that helps. Thank you guys so much for these questions. <laughs> what are you laughing about? That's so funny. I don't know everything. My references to the Peach Pit After Dark, you think that's I funny? I love the Peach Pit After Dark. Yeah, well, I'm a little bit older than you. I know about these things. <sighs> okay, let's start the rewatch. Let's do it. at the beginning look incredibly realistic. Do you know if they actually shot in Mexico? Believe it or not, Stacey, I actually do know the answer to this question. And the reality is I did not know the answer to this question. And I had to talk to Taylor right before we recorded this. I didn't know because I'd written myself off all these episodes because I had the wonderful idea of creating this storyline with Jackie, the next door neighbor. So I had no clue. But yeah, I talked to Kitch and Kitch told me that they shot all the Mexico stuff in South Padre Island in Texas, which for those of you who aren't from Texas, South Padre is like the spring break capital of Texas. I feel like I missed out on it when I was in college, but that's where all the college kids and and high school kids go during spring break. This is their own little spring break in the middle of the week. Kids get back in school. I'm taking umbrage again with Buddy Garrity. How the heck is Buddy Garrity in charge of firing the head coach? He somehow has authorization to give him a severance package. And there seems to be nobody from the actual school involved in this. I don't know that I'm positive about how this works, but I have a good idea of how this works. Buddy Garrity is the head booster in town, which means he and other boosters have massively deep pockets and they have total influence over Dylan's athletic director. So if Buddy and the other boosters want you gone, you're gone. It's just that simple. It's kind of the same way, unfortunately, that campaign contributors have control over politicians. I give you a million dollars to better your school and to make sure that your school has all the facilities it needs. I also get to tell you which coach I want. I get that and I agree with you. I just find it so weird that it's Buddy that actually fires him. And then Buddy telling Coach Taylor to come back and like, where are the principals or the school board and the people that hire and fire for the school? Where are these people? There was another person in the room when Buddy Garrity let this guy go. I mean, we've never established that Dylan has an athletic director. So there's a very good chance that that person was the athletic director or potentially the the principal of Dylan High. I don't think we've ever established who the principal at Dylan is. I mean, I know in later seasons, we definitely established who the principal is at East Dylan, Mm. but I don't know that we ever established who the principal is at Dylan. So yes, I mean, technically this would be something that a principal would do, but it would be coming from the boosters 100%. And that's not BS. I mean, that stuff happens in college football all the time. I do kind of think this, I'm using air quotations, guys, this severance package is actually just Buddy handling him like a pile of his own cash, like not from the school. Definitely could be. 100%. I don't know if you know this, but the highest paid government jobs in every state in the country is football coaches or basketball coaches. Did you know that? No, it makes me feel a little icky though. It is a little icky. And that's what Friday Night Lights, the book talks about and a little bit about what the show talks about. It's wonderful to have a love for a game, but the game can sometimes get so crazy and overwhelming that it becomes absurd. And I think that that's Buddy Garrity is absurd. Anyway. Jason Street has a bag of cash and it's $10,000. Where the heck did this boy get $10,000? I'm pretty sure that that money comes from the settlement that he had with Coach and with the school. And that was that whole entire lawsuit that was going on in the first season. I know that he and Coach settled and I know that Jason and his family wound up settling with the school. So some of that money, I think, is probably what's being used right now for this experimental treatment. Here's something I want to talk about. Julie's still being a jerk and I'm tired of it. 
Yeah, she's a brat. Oh my gosh, that scene with her and, and, and Gracie and, and Tammy while Tammy's laying on the couch. I loved Julie in the first season. It's getting to the point right now. I forgot how much I dislike her in this season. Buddy better hurry up and get Coach back and get his coup taken care of because I, I can't take much more of this attitude from Julie. No, I agree. I need something redeeming to happen. I want to make sure we're saying this the right way. It's Julie that we're upset with. Amy Teagarden is doing such a good job with the material that's given to her. And the reason we don't like her is because Amy is doing such a good job with it. But like, oh, 100%. Julie. 100%. She's, yeah, she's doing her job as an actress. I get a lot of that myself because a lot, Billy is not the most liked character on Friday Night Lights. Mm. I have people constantly coming up to me like, it's your fault that Tim went to prison. And I'm like, I didn't do It's Billy. Billy's a jackass. Don't blame me. I've never yeah, stolen sorry. copper wire in my life. Sorry. That we know of. But yeah, so as I was saying, like, we need Coach back in town. And then next thing we know, Buddy Garrett, he's calling him pregame. Or actually, I think it might be in the middle of a game. He gets the hotline to the offensive coordinator's booth. And he's calling Coach and says, the eagle has landed. Eagle's landed. Hey, Eric, the eagle <laughs> has landed. And just like that, it looks like Coach has officially done at TMU. He puts in his notice and the head coach at TMU is like, you know, how about you just go now? Yep, don't need your notice. I made that mistake one time. Oh, this is terrible. I was waiting tables in New York, starving. And this job, I was making no money doing it. And I went to the boss and I was like, hey, I'm going to put my two weeks in. And he goes, two weeks? Why don't you go ahead and leave now? And I was like, no, I need this job for the next two weeks. And he's like, no, no, no. No. Get the hell out of here. And I remember it was freezing cold. I had no money. I'd lost my glove. I had two gloves, but I was missing a glove. And I was calling my dad from a payphone on like 44th Street in Manhattan, just bawling. It was like 10 degrees outside. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have a job and I'm missing a glove. And I don't, it was terrible. Coach made the ultimate mistake here of quitting one job before he's positive he's got another. Let that be a lesson. Sidebar, I'm going to tell you my work story. Yes. I didn't quit. I didn't give two weeks notice, but I was working at a coffee shop and it had just opened up. And my boss, the owner of the coffee shop, the day before paid me in cash out of the till $200, which was my two weeks of working. The next day I went to open up and she was there. I was like, oh my gosh, why are you here? And she goes, hand in your shirt. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, hand in your shirt, you're fired. I was like, why am I fired? She goes, there's $200 missing from the till. And I was like, you mean the $200 you paid me yesterday because we haven't signed like I-9s yet? And she goes, I don't know. All I know is it's missing. Give me your shirt. And I was like, if I give you my shirt, I will be naked. So I will come back later with my shirt. And I left and I was like, what just happened? And I cried. I've never been fired in my life. But yeah, she, she fired me. Wow, that is shady. It was very weird. It went out of business like a month later. So hey, hey, joke's on her. Yeah, good. The place where he just basically told me to leave, it went out of business too. But listen, this is what happens when you fire Derek and Stacy. That's right. It's a Chinese restaurant now. Ha. I just kind of want to shake Tyra and say, it's time to move on. It's time to be done with this. Let Landry turn himself in. He's doing it for the right reasons. I find a little bit of what Tyra's doing to be selfish because I don't think she's thinking about the bigger picture and of Landry. It's more about her. Maybe that's placing too much emphasis on it. No, I get where you're coming from. I remember I didn't steal, but I took the car out one time when I was in high school. And it was before I had my driver's license. Ooh. My parents were out of town and I took the car. And I literally, I'm not kidding when I say I got to the end of the block. And my heart was going, boop, 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 boop. and I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I took the car back. And my dad came back into town and he goes, you take my car? And I go, what? And he goes, did you take my car? And I lied. And I said, no, I didn't. I didn't drive the car. And then I had this 
not just guilt, but also fear of like, he knows something I don't know. And that was weighing on me. I couldn't last more than an hour before I went back into the office in our house. And I said, dad, I took the car. I literally just went down to the end of the block. I got scared and I brought it back. And he's like, all right. And then like 10 minutes later, I walk back in and I go, how'd you know? And he goes, because you pulled the seat up, idiot. And you just oh, put in the mirrors. And I'm like, I thought I'd moved everything back. That was one hour of guilt racked. I know somebody might know something and I'm going to get caught. I can't imagine what's on Landry's conscience right now. Oh, yeah, 24-7. There's a part of me that agrees with him. It's like, just rip the Band-Aid off. Mm-hmm. However bad the punishment is going to be, I think he says, is it any worse than what we're living in right now? How do you live looking over your shoulder every single day? It gives me anxiety to think oh. about it. Sidebar, Landry has a huge poster of the periodic table of elements on his wall, and it warms my heart a little bit. Santiago, I forgot. I forgot about Benny. How could you forget about Santiago? What's wrong with you? I remember Benny. Like, I remember being around him on set, but I'm going to be honest with you. I honestly don't know what happens with his storyline, but he's with us for a while. I think this whole season, actually. I forgot how good an actor he is. He's so good. Okay, hold on. Your brother tried to bribe a cop. That's massive. Not the smartest. Also in that same scene, I think it's then Jason admits that this surgery has not worked for anyone. Nobody that's had this treatment has been able to walk after. And I'm just screaming inside my head, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. No, I hear you. I also wanted to say that those lines that Tim has in this scene, these are 100% improv lines from Taylor Kitsch. Kitsch has a way of always saying, let's make some memories, let's make some memories. No regrets. No regrets. Anytime you hear no regrets or him calling somebody by their number or streeter, it's a very Canadian thing to put in ER. I've noticed this. They have two nicknames in Canada. Either you're ER at the end of your name or you put a Y at the end of somebody's name. I don't know what we do with Oristan. Taylor also does a thing where he'll give you a nickname and then he makes it plural. Like I was Minz. It's a very Taylor Kitsch thing. Like he'll give you a nickname and then he'll nickname the nickname he gives you. But Street is Streeter. He has a buddy named Clark. His last name's Clark and he's Clarky. There's Scoots and Scooter. We'll call it a Kitschism. It's a Kitschism. There's a lot of Kitschisms. So many that literally when you have text messages with him, you don't understand half of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your decipher code. Are you a booted E? Hey, bro, I'm going to go grab Grab a bang and get a grease wheel, you in? (laughs) I'm serious. That's the literal thing he'll say. I'm going to go get a bang and grab a grease wheel later. You want to come? I have no idea what that means. It means I'm going to go to the gym and work out. Grabbing a bang is going to the gym? Yeah, he says I'm going to go get a bang. (laughs) Getting a bang in. It's better than slamming plates, bro. I slam plates. Anyway. Okay, listen. Coach Eric Taylor, this is why Mm -hmm. you don't trust Buddy Garrity. He doesn't work at the school. And it seems to me like all of these deals went down in some like shady back room of a bar. Because now all of a sudden, maybe that coach isn't gone, but Eric Taylor doesn't have a job now. Uh, That's true. But what does he say in the scene? That's just a little hitch in his get along. (laughs) But he's going to get it all worked out, Stacey. I have total faith in him. Why would Buddy ever let us down? I'm not going to lie, though. It does feel good to have coach back in Dylan. Like the minute he comes back, it's like, all right, things are kind of getting back to normal. Things just haven't felt right. Even Julie's nice and excited for a minute, which was like, oh, thank God. Yeah, for a minute. But you know what? I don't know what happens in the rest of the season, honestly, because it's been so long since I've seen it. But it feels like just having him back in town, it's like all of a sudden there's like an evening out of Julie's angsty, awful. Yeah, she's a bit of a daddy's girl. I get that. Oh, in this driving scene with Julie? I mean, this reminds me of being back in Miami visiting my family over Thanksgiving literally this year. Because I'm driving my rental car with my dad in the passenger seat. I'm 45 years old. 
And he's still giving me directions and telling me to check my mirrors every five seconds. I'm 45 years old. In your parents' eyes, you are always the baby. It doesn't matter. It was my rental car. It wasn't his car. Doesn't matter. I remember all of these scenes with Julie driving, either with Tammy or with Eric gave me PTSD to learning how to drive. My stepfather brought me to an open parking lot and there was a giant glass of water filled to the very brim. And he put the glass of water on the dashboard and I had to do donuts in the parking lot and I wasn't allowed to spill a drop. And I, of course, did and cried and I couldn't figure out like what I was doing wrong. But me learning to drive was involved a lot of yelling and a lot of tears. So I was super undersized. I was like four foot 11 when I was 15. I don't think I was over five feet until I turned like 15 years old. Late bloomer, big time. So yeah, I mean, I, I could barely touch the pedals. And on top of it, it was a stick shift. So I'm learning on a stick shift. I mean, I burned the clutch out of this car just Every single time, it was a nightmare. My dad's not, I love him, but he's not the most patient man on the planet. (laughs) I think every teen has a little bit of learning to drive trauma. I mean, I still do. I think that's why I brought that up because I felt like Mm -hmm. a little kid being in the car driving with my dad earlier this year. I'm not a good driver just to begin with. I think you're a good driver. Oh, I'm not good. Stacy. No, I knew, I know, I knew you were going to bring this (laughs) She is the slowest driver on the planet. (laughs) She drives like five miles an hour. And just blaring musical theater in the car. It's <laughs> nightmare. yells at me every time we're in the car. I think we've talked about this before, but I'm going to say it again. When I am by myself, I am a speed demon. But the minute I have an actual other person in the car, I freak out because essentially your life is in my hands. And so I am extra cautious. Just so that is me loving you and I don't want to hurt you. But also you guys, Derek does yell at me when I drive. <laughs> oh, I totally do. She drives so slow. It's It's brutal. to the episode. Oh, yeah. Hi. Yeah. So Jason goes in to see this experimental doctor and the doctor starts talking about shark stem cells. Yeah. So yeah, what you were saying earlier, this is a bad idea. This is beyond a bad idea. I'm sitting there watching this going, you need to get out of that operating room like stat. I mean, when Tim Riggins is telling you that something is no bueno, it's probably no bueno. Yeah. We had heard Street say stem cells before. And I was like, I get stem cells. I get going to another country to do it. I have some friends that have done it for Lyme disease and you have to go to another country to do it. But then we're like, oh, these aren't human. These are shark stem cells. You're going to inject them into your spine. Oh my God. Yeah. But listen, Poisons. listening to the doctor, I am interested in the study of it, but maybe sure. not in Jason Street. He was, I, I'm guessing at this point, still a minor. I don't actually know, but yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the study of it, but not in Jason being a lab rat. I agree. Like maybe, you know, if you sprain your ankle, just a couple of baby shark stem cells could heal you. Guys, I am a doctor, by the way. I don't know if if I've said this before. I played one one time. It's close enough. Okay, my stripper lawn mowing business. I had completely forgotten about this. I honestly 100% don't remember filming this scene. It was a shock to me to see my face, but I do remember David Hudgens telling me that this was a real business that some girls had done and they made bucket loads of money. So they actually naked when they do it? No, it's bikinis, mowing lawns and bikinis. All right. We did film a scene. I was like in charge of it. So I was in a very tiny bikini, but I had my stripper shoes on and my two friends were mowing lawns in their bikinis, but they had like knee-high socks and 
sneakers on. And the funny thing about it was Matt and Landry were across the street having a conversation, watching us do it. But I was walking around on gravel in my stripper heels. I'm pretty sure the scene got cut and it probably got cut because I looked like a baby horse learning how to walk. A giraffe on ice. <laughs> All limbs and gangly. <laughs> I wish I could have seen that. It's not my favorite day of work. I, I like clothes. I'd love to watch you walk on gravel. You could watch me get crapped out of the butt end of a spider. Done. Deal. So, I mean, I've never heard of a stripper lawn mowing service. I know that there's like a stripper maid service. Yeah, there's a big one in LA. They're everywhere. Do you know that if you do hire them, there's an actual cleaning crew that comes to clean your house. And then one girl sort of just with a feather duster goes around topless is how those work. Again, makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's extremely lucrative. And I think that was a wonderful idea, Thank Stacey. You. I think Mindy, Mindy made some money off this. Mindy is quite the entrepreneur. <laughs> I am going to say that later in this scene, though, because what's actually going on in this oh, scene? Oh, yes, there's important things the, happening. The, the important stuff in this scene <laughs> is that there's two cops that come walking in. And I mean, my heart was just pounding like, oh, no. Oh, no, they got him. And all these cops were wanting to talk about is Dylan Panther football, of course. But this is like what we're talking about before. And now, anytime Landry sees a cop and his dad is a cop, his heart's going to do that. Yeah, I couldn't live with it. I'm not a good crook. Is what a crook would say. Take it easy. I did want to say that this Buddy Garrity speech, when he's sitting there talking to these lawyers, is literally on par with Henry V. St. Crispin's speech. Oh, jeez. What? I'm riled up. And I can't believe that you, Stacy, doubted oh, yeah. that Buddy Garrity would get the job done. I did. I doubted. All of it. He goes in there and he's just like, look, man, I'm going to tell you right now, the reason we're getting rid of this guy is because he was not winning football games. We have a tradition of winning here. This isn't Larrabee, all right? Just got me riled up. It's one of those things. We've talked about it before. Like, you don't have to like Buddy Garrity. You don't like him when he's against you. But man, it's good to have a guy like Buddy Garrity on your side. Yeah. He's loyal. I'll give Buddy that. I don't know about that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> to Eric, he is. I love Buddy when he's on my side. This scene in the car, we had talked a while before about Tammy having a lot of heaviness and weight when she was talking about making love for the first time or something. It felt very weighted. And now she's telling Julie about the first time and about how she felt afterwards and how it didn't mean anything. This scene is uncomfortable and it's yeah. supposed to be, but I also loved it. Yeah, it's a beautifully written scene. Look, at the end of the day, I love these two together. Not the Swede and Julie. I mean, Tammy and Julie, I like when their relationship is working. It's like after all the BS, after all the angsty teenage stuff, I think that there's still a good person there with Julie. And yeah, I think you'd need these moments where they kind of connect with each other. And we'll see later in this episode that that's exactly what happens. I mean, she doesn't sleep with the Swede, but it doesn't end up well. He's not really into her the way that she's into him. And yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if Julie would have noticed that as quickly if Tammy hadn't told her this earnest truth from her childhood. Yeah. Way to go, ah. writers of FNL. I don't miss having to learn all that stuff. You know what I mean? As a kid, I think that's why this show resonates so much. You know, because you remember these moments, either the awful, awkward moments or the beautiful, fun moments. Now, this show has a lot of universal truths in it. Here's a question I have for you, Stacey. I'm ready. Why do you think that Buddy Garrity is helping Santiago get this job. Is he just using Santiago to get back in Lila's good graces? I think it has to be. There was that moment he and Pam had before where he admitted that he and Lila aren't really talking right now. Mm -hmm. It does seem that Buddy will kind of give anybody a job <laughs> at true. his place. But yeah, there's no other reason. Well, if it's football related, usually, yeah. I mean, you know. Right, like Matt's dad. But yes, there's no other reason to hire this kid who has no background in what he's doing. 
but it made Lila happy. And the part of that made me be like, that was actually a really sweet dad move. But also a little manipulative because that's Buddy Garrity. Oh, God, I didn't even think about it. It's right a there. little manipulative. Oh, God, now I feel <laughs> Well, I didn't mean to ruin the moment for you. I know I'm supposed to suspend my disbelief. I know it's a TV show. I'm living in it. I love it. But how the heck did Julie get to the Swede's house? We know she can't drive. Dylan's got amazing public transportation. Maybe Lois took her. Who knows? Don't worry about it, Stacey. Just... Follow, I'll the, follow story. the story. Let I'll go. go with you that she was Let on the go. subway underneath Dylan. Yeah, she took the Dylan subway over to the sweet house. The dart, whatever. <laughs> dart. <laughs> Dylan's got its own dart. Brilliant. Listeners, I need to tell you this scene we have Scott Porter doing karaoke. And some of you may know, a lot of you may not. Scott Porter has a gorgeous singing voice after, not right now, don't pause. After you listen to the podcast, Go listen to the Alter Boys original cast recording. It's an off-Broadway show he did right before he came to Friday Night Lights. That kid can sing. You can't tell in this scene, but he's got pipes. This is true, though. He can sing his butt off. He's a legit triple threat. Yeah, he, he is. I mean, I'm trying to think of who else on our show is a legit triple threat. I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> who else on our show is a legit triple threat. Oh, maybe Stacy. Stacy's is a triple threat, but Scott is a triple threat. Who else besides you two is a triple threat? Um, Maybe not triple threat, but Bud Light, Buddy Jr., Jeff Rusick is an insanely good composer. He composes like entire movies. I did not know that. I mean, I know Liz Michael started out as a dancer. I can't speak to whether or not she's a good dancer she, now. She but can I sing her face off. She can sing her face off. Dana Wheeler was a dancer as well. Dana sings. Mm -hmm. Aldous Hodge. I'm not going to talk about his character, but Aldous Hodge is mm -hmm. like a virtuoso violinist. There was a time when I had a thought about doing For Gridiron Heroes for Our Charity, doing an album of people from Friday Night Lights. There are so many musicians and so many singers. Jesse Plemons is an amazing musician. Incredible. And I had the thought and then I didn't do anything with it because... That's how my brain works. I was really good at Garage Band. You were really good at Garage Band. Okay, this scene, we got coach on coach straight on the doorstep. This was tense. The scene is tense. The world we're living in is tense, but also just those two actors, mano a mano, head to head like that was like, oh, oh my God. You got to think that the writers were probably planning on having this come back later in the season. Because McGregor has been like the primary antagonist for this season. It's funny because in this scene, I actually kind of felt for him. When you see his truck packed up and ready to go, I mean, they look like the Jodes moving to California in Grapes of Wrath. I'm pretty sure the intention, honestly, from the writer's standpoint was to bring McGregor back at the end of the season. I know that there was probably going to be something. But of course, the writer's strike ended this season short. I think this is only a 16-episode season. It's supposed to be 22. Is this the last we see of that coach? No, yeah. yeah. Whoa. He's like, this isn't the last you'll see of me. And I was like, probably not. Technically, it was. And for those of you keeping score at home, Mac McGill has now been passed up for the head coaching job three times. Poor Mac. Three times. Just give mm. the guy a win. Give him a bone. Poor racist Mac McGill. Poor racist <laughs> Mac McGill. Throw the kid a bone. I got to tell you, I was so thoroughly unprepared for the end of this episode and Amy T. Garden sitting on a bench giving me a PSA. I didn't know it ever happened. 
I did not know Netflix would air it as part of the episode. It threw me so far out of living in the world of Dylan. It was kind of weird, but I will tell you that that PSA probably paid your damn salary for this show. All right, so take it easy. Mm. I can't remember exactly which auto insurance company paid to have the driving scene. They literally paid to have the instruction scene with Tammy and Julie earlier in the episode. But this episode was literally partially paid for because of that PSA. From an insurance company? I can't be positive that it was an insurance company, but NBC had a lot of these things going on at the time. I don't know if it was multiple insurance companies paying for these, but they would have PSAs with their shows. And there were moments, I mean, there's still moments, guys. If you watch film or television enough, if you see a label like Coca-Cola in a scene or Pepsi in a scene, it's 100% product placement. We got some Toyota 11 just because Buddy owns it. We got some love from Under Armour on this show. I mean, there's product placement in this show. Yeah, we try not to beat it over people's heads. I've always felt with product placement, as long as it's not like taking me out of the show, then fine. Absolutely. And I didn't feel like the driving scene took me out of the show. Now, if this PSA had popped up in the show, that would have been a different story. I think that's why it was so jarring to me because I didn't think at all about it being part of the show. It's an important thing that Amy Teagarden's talking about. Yeah. And it is jarring, not just because, you know, it's Amy making eye contact with the camera and breaking that fourth wall and talking, but even the way the camera's set up. Yeah, it's very weird. It's very pretty. They've got like a tracking shot where it tracks in on it. It's very pretty. And it's like, this is one thing, though. You get to see exactly how beautiful these people are in real life because that's what they actually look like. Friday Night Lights is shot on 16 millimeter. Everything is very grainy on purpose. You know, this is a choice to make it grainy, to make it gritty. But anyway, I think... That might be the end of this episode for us, That's it for season two, episode four. But please join us next time for episode five, Let's Get It On. But until then, clear eyes. All hearts. Can't Can't lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our website, clearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.